Hey everybody, it's JT. What is on your holiday meal shopping list? Well, I would suggest Painted Hills Natural Beef. It is some of the best beef in the world. And your friends and family will be thanking you for a long time if you serve Painted Hills Natural Beef for your holiday meals. And now you can buy it online just by going to PaintedHillsBeef.com. Use the code BBQNATION at checkout and save yourself 15% on your order. Give Painted Hills Natural Beef a place on your table this holiday season. It's time for Barbecue Nation with JT. So fire up your grill, light the charcoal, and get your smoker cooking. Now, from the Turn It, Don't Burn It studios in Portland, here's JT. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the nation. That's Barbecue Nation. I'm JT, along with Camaro Dave and Commander Chris. Coming to you from our famous Turn It, Don't Burn It studios in Portland, Oregon. This segment of Barbecue Nation is brought to you in part by Painted Hills Natural Beef. Beef the way nature intended. How would you like to write 29 cookbooks? That's, I don't know. That's, a, I bet you most of you never thought of that. Well, today we're very fortunate. We've got Bridget Bins with us. Bridget has either authored or co-authored with other people uh, 29 books. She was very kind and sent me a couple of them, um, although not hard copies, because there was a mix-up in the mail. Um, but we, we've got it, and I've read a couple of them, and they were very good. And Bridget and her husband operate a place down in, um, well, I don't know if you'd call it Central California. Uh, in L.A., they'd almost call it Northern California, but it's up there in the Paso Robles area called Refugio, Refugio, uh, Paso Robles. So that Refugio Road runs about 700 miles through California, I pretty much think. Anyway, Bridget, welcome to the show. <laughs> hey, Jeff, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. No worries. Uh, as we say it off the air, you know, I'm familiar with that area. Spent some time down there. And I do think Refugio, I can never say it even 20 years ago, Refugio Road, I think runs from like Montecito all the way to San Francisco. I'm not sure, but um, there's a lot of things. I, you know, I say it, Jeff, it's funny. I say refugio, which may or may not be. I mean, everybody has a different way of saying it. Mm -hmm. And my Spanish speaking friends say refugio with a kind of a K in there. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll take that into uh, consideration. Anyway, um, Bridget and her husband run a, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a, a it's not really a bed and breakfast. It's more than that because you can go there and you can, you can stay there and then you can take some cooking classes with Bridget and you can do lots of fun things. So anyway, uh, w welcome, as I said, and let's, let's kind of get started with a little history on you. How did all this come about? And the other thing I want to know right off the bat is how did you get kicked out of boarding school? We're staying away from politics. Remember, Joe? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's so funny. Um, yeah, you saw that, huh? Oh, yeah. Um, when I was 12 years old, remember how we had the moratorium demonstrations against the Vietnam War um, in October of whatever year that was? I guess it maybe it was 69 or something. Right. I led one oh. at boarding school, even though I was only 12. Um, and I got expelled. <laughs> well, um, I have a similar, similar experience when I was in high school, I called a general food strike because we went from really good food into the cafeteria, uh, into a, a government subsidized, uh, sawdust burger, 
um, food program, and I got in trouble for that too. Not quite as heady as the Vietnam War, but it, it was. I was still out there on the front lines, you know. So hey, it's good to you know start out as you mean to go on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So how did you get into to cooking? I know you spent some time overseas. You you went to school here in Portland for a while at Lewis and Clark. Um, I did. And so you've had a very well-traveled life, but what was the impetus when you finally went, I'm going to do food? You know, I had always been, uh, my mother was a good cook. And back in the 70s in Los Angeles, she used to make um, cheese souffle and flank steak and, you know, stuff that was a little bit uh, more ambitious than everybody else was doing at the time. And I came to see that she kind of forced me to, to be her sous chef all the time. And I realized that people really like it. They like it when you cook for them and they like it when food is good and homemade. And that sort of made a big impression on me. And then in uh, a different boarding school, I went on a long hike in the Grand Canyon and we had to do a solo. Remember those things where you had to like have a bag of granola for three days and right. sit there and con- contemplate the moon. Um and I just, all I could do is think about her lamb stew. <laughs> well, yeah, when you're hungry, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, it was it was important to me from from day one. Food was was something that was that I understood was a convivial. Uh, you have to do it, but you might as well do it right. And through many vicissitudes, I ended up with the opportunity to go to the professional cooking school in London. And, um, and that was it. You know, I kind of, I made a career out of it first in Spain where I was a caterer. Um, and then later when I moved to Los Angeles after 10 years in Europe, I started sending my resume around to top chefs in the area. And one of them hired me to write his cookbook and things just kind of fell into place from there. And I'm incredibly grateful for how it has worked out. Oh, I bet. I bet. And, you know, that's kind of interesting because a lot of good stories about people in in our industry, um, they didn't just get out of high school and they they went to college for a couple of years and they said, this isn't for me. And so then they went to CIA or whatever uh, Culinary mm-hmm. Institute, not not the guys in Washington. But, um, you know, they did that. And. A lot of them did that, but they they didn't really jump forward in the industry. It seems to me that people who are going to do well, um, and this is just a personal observation, but people that are going to do well, a lot of them are very well-traveled. They've had a lot of different influences. It's just not mom's beef stew, you know, lamb stew is different. But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it it seems to me that people that are going to be successful and have a story and can actually um, tell a story through their food have to have that those experiences. I totally agree with you. And I think my my time at Lewis and Clark, they have a very ambitious overseas travel program at Lewis and Clark. And I actually was one of the few people to manage to do two of them in my college career. And I went first to Malaysia as a sophomore and then to Hong Kong as a senior, both times for six months. And I think that you, you really, you look as a young person, you're so unformed and you look around you and you begin to understand that other people eat and live 
differently. And I think you, what you just said sums that up is that you become fascinated with other food ways and it helps you see your own food ways in a much more interesting and a clearer light. And certainly that was, um, that was inspiration for me. Although I don't really cook Asian food because there's too much chopping. So, um, <laughs> but I I learned a lot over there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Safeway does sell these pre-chopped bags of, you know, celery and peppers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Just throwing that out there for you. So thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll throw that uh, right back. Okay. You, you do that. We're talking with, uh, Bridget Benz from, uh, uh, I was going to say it the way she does refugio, uh, Paso Robles down in California and Bridget's authored, um, probably more cookbooks than are actually in the library of Congress. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, when you, when you, when you started your career and you said a chef down in LA, um, you know, hired you to help write his cookbook. Mm-hmm. Is that any different than what you do today? The process? Oh gosh. Yes. I, I have to say with that book, he was a really highly respected chef award, Zagat award winner for years and years. And he had, he was German. Uh, I used to write several books for German chefs and he had no patience. So I, and I had no experience. So I really had to reinvent the wheel on that book. And what happened was that I would go to his house in the Hollywood Hills in the daytime and cook based on, he would sort of tell me recipes or he would scribble them on a cocktail napkin or something. And then I would go up and try to recreate the dish in a home kitchen because there's no point in recreating a dish in the restaurant kitchen. That's not what the folks at home have. Right. Anyway, then he would come home at night after I was already gone and critique my presentations <laughs> that I left out on the counter for him. And there would be like little diagrams and circles and German words and stuff like that. So um, it was it was quite a challenge, but I did it. And then right around the same time, I got a solo book, my very first solo, just plain Bridget cookbook called Polenta. And, um, and that was for Chronicle Books. And I had the best time. It was such a privilege to be able to write head notes as me instead of as a German guy. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, it, it probably, and it wasn't written with an accent either. You will cook it this way, you know, type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you know what he used to say? That the kitchen guys would always, when they were giving me the ingredients, they would give me little stories about the chef. And so his most famous comment in the kitchen is, give me, give me the thing. Give me the, the, the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they had to figure out what the thing was. <laughs> no, I did. Yeah. I had similar experiences in the horse business where, and then in cooking later, when I got into that, you had no idea what the thing was, but they needed it. Right. right. They needed it like Ricky tick now, you know, right now. Yeah. So that was good. Um, What, what enticed you to write the book kiss by fire? Excuse me. Well, I think we need to go back to when I erroneously agreed to California and moved to upstate New York. And I realized that it was going to be very cold there. And as a Californian and a West coaster, I wasn't prepared. So my husband and I built a house 
from scratch on a piece of an old mushroom farm that had never had a house on it before, way upstate. And so we put in a fireplace that you could cook in. I realized I didn't want to just make pizza in it. I wanted to make chicken and lamb shanks and tomato tarts and artichokes cooked in the embers. And that's what that book is all about. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to talk about that coming up in the next segment. We're talking with Bridget Benz, and uh, we'll be back here on Barbecue Nation in just a couple minutes. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's JT, and this is a special version of Barbecue Nation. It is brought to you in part by Painted Hills Natural Beef, beef you can be proud to serve your family and friends. That's Painted Hills Natural Beef. Support for Barbecue Nation is brought to you in part by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for the family jewels. That's right. They obsess over their technology developments to provide you with the best tools for your grooming experience. Now, Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. And here at Barbecue Nation, we have an exclusive offer for my listeners. 20% off plus free shipping with the code BBQ. That's BBQ at manscaped.com. So you see, Manscaped hooked me up with a whole bunch of tools uh, and formulations from their Perfect Package 3.0 kit. Works out great. Manscaped has created the best Family jewel hair trimmer ever called the Lawnmower 3.0. Don't be scared. It works really well. And you don't want to use the same trimmer on your face as you use down there. That's just not good, kind of nasty. So the Lawnmower 3.0 comes inside their brand new Perfect Package 3.0, which comes with everything you need to keep trimmed up, cut free, and smelling nice. Manscaped also threw in two free gifts into their perfect package, a pair of high-performance Manscaped boxer briefs, and that'll keep your family privates feeling fresh all day, and a travel shed bag to store all your grooming goodies. Oh, yeah. You know, when you work around a 400-degree grill like I do a lot, you do not want a brush fire. Trust me on that. So you want to keep trimmed up nice, Make a little landing strip if you need to. Doesn't matter. Just keep it clean and neat down there. Because a brush fire? Uh, no, you don't want that. Okay, so you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code barbecue, BBQ at manscaped.com. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code barbecue at manscaped.com. That's BBQ, and that's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Don't forget to use the code BBQ. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Welcome back to Barbecue Nation here on the Sun Radio Networks. I'm JT, your host, and today we're talking with Bridget Benz. And for some reason, the weather's changed and I got a frog in my throat. So uh, forgive me for that. If you'd like to email us, you can do it very easily. It's info at thecowboycook.com, info at thecowboycook.com. And that comes directly to me. Also, we've got Facebook. That's Barbecue Nation JT and Twitter and uh, 17 different, literally 17 different um, podcasts and uh, social media platforms that we are out on every week. So 
If you want to find us, it's not that hard. So let's get back and talk some more with Bridget here. Um, in the in the Kiss by Fire book, and you and you sent me another book to the new Wine Country Cookbook, but um, and I made it through that one too, if you can believe it. I actually did because you do a lot of seafood and stuff in there, and foods that I like. Uh, so I found them both very interesting. I haven't made it through the other twenty seven though. Um, <laughs> you know, in the, in the two days I had to do it. Um, but one of the things that you talked about right at the front of the book, and you talked about the three different heat sources, and this is in Kiss by Fire. You talk about the air inside the oven temp and the mass temp kind of go over our listeners. Cause a lot of them, uh, a lot of them cook with gas, a lot of them cook with pellets, a lot of them cook with charcoal, but there's still a good herd of them out there that like to cook with fire. And uh, real, you know, live fire wood, that type of thing. Kind of go mm-hmm. over those because I thought those were really fascinating. Well, you know, um, there's a, I have a, do you know what a Santa Maria grill is? I'm sure you do because yeah. you, you spent time out here. Um, that's an interesting little item to talk about when we're thinking about types of fire and how they work. The, the Santa Maria does not generally have a lid on it. So it is truly live fire, and it's what's called an oxidative fire mm-hmm. because there's no lid. So when you use the, a Weber or something else that has a lid on it with live fire with, from the actual wood, it becomes a reductive fire. And so it's much, much easier to manage a reductive fire because you can close the vents or whatever it is that you're going to do to exclude the oxygen. There's the other side of it, the Santa Maria, the open flame, like a campfire, where you just have a grill set on top of your bricks or whatever you use to prop it up. Again, that's an oxidated fire and much harder to manage. Um, And then with the oven... With the wood-burning oven, you have the mass, as you mentioned, the mass of the the walls or the dome of right. the oven itself. Right. And they, you get them hot with your fire, and then they radiate. So the heat radiates out from those walls. And then that's different from the convection heat, which happens because fire creates a little bit of a storm. Like we all know, recently, unfortunately, we've had too many of those firestorms, but it creates a, a kind of a circular convection inside the oven that licks up at the top of it and comes around. And so that will heat things um, just by the air temperature being hotter. Is this, is this answering your question? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then Meathead always goes on, our mutual wonderful friend Meathead of AmazingRibs.com, he always talks about the, um, what's the one where you touch it? And I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on it, where it's, the actual surface is hot. Right. Um, um, that's the third kind of heat. Yeah. Um, now, I wish you hadn't said that because my mind just went completely blank. Um, I'm watching well, people walking their dogs out the window here or something, you know. Both of our minds went totally blank. But so say um, his example is when you put a frying pan in a hot oven, right? A cast iron pan in a hot oven. Right. You, it's 400 degrees. You can put your hand into that oven in the air in that oven for a, a moment and it won't kill you. But if you put your hand on the cast iron pan, you'll be in the hospital. So it, it 
surfaces, especially something like cast iron, absorbs heat and concentrates it much, much more so than the air. Absolutely. And then you say also in the book, um, knowing your oven uh, before you try anything really ambitious. Now, Meathead and I talk about this all the time, because whether you're using a grill or even at, in, at this happens at home um, also, you will have hot spots in your oven and you will have, mm-hmm. you know, little cooler sides. Even if you, I mean, we bought a brand new oven last year because ours went uh, gunny sack on us. And I've noticed that it's, it's really nice. It's top of the line type thing, but just like always, every oven I've ever cooked in one side's a little more done than the other, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and getting to know that. So, Give us the Bridget theory on actually how you get to know your oven before you try anything ambitious. What would you do? Well, I keep notes. It sounds silly, but that is really the only way that you can possibly uh, uh, make an informed uh, learning curve about your heat source or your cooking source, whether it's a wood-burning oven, whether it's a home oven. Just make the notes. Have a get a nice cute little um, journal, and then put in there what you did, how much did the protein or whatever it is weigh, did you have to turn it around, how long did it take. This is something that I learned when working for William Sonoma. I wrote uh, eleven books for William Sonoma, and they are real sticklers when it comes to description. And so that's how I was trained. There must be not only a time, there must be a time range, and there also must be a visual cue. So, okay, so if I say in a recipe, 10 to 12 minutes or until golden, I'm giving you, I'm giving you a range of cues that you can use. Now, when you're keeping notes in your cute little journal, you have to say to your, your future self, this took 10 minutes to be golden, but I had to twirl it around because the right side was getting golden faster than the left side. So that's how you learn about the little vagaries. But you're not going to remember it. I mean, let's face it, even if you haven't had a couple of beers, you're still not going to remember <laughs> it. So, <laughs> I mean, we're just not like that. I don't care how old we are. You're not going to remember. The next time you make the ribs, you're going to forget that it's 10 to 12 minutes and you have to flip around. Now you have the note. Right. We're talking with Bridget Benz, um, author of multiple cookbooks and her and her husband own refugio paso robles uh which is a place you can go stay and actually get some cooking lessons from bridget and we're going to take a break here on barbecue nation network and be back in a minute stay with us If you're enjoying GT and his show, come check out my podcast, Around the House with Eric G, where we talk home improvement and design right here where you catch this podcast. Head to AroundTheHouseOnline.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Barbecue Nation. I'm JT here on the Sun Radio Network. So we'd like to thank the folks at Painted Hills Natural Beef. Beef you can be proud to serve your family and friends. Always consistent with quality and taste. That's Painted Hills Natural Beef. Check them out online at PaintedHillsNaturalBeef.com. And also Gunter Wilhelm Knives. You know, I've got some now. And uh, 
I like them a lot. There's a lot of good knives out there. I, I get that, and everybody's got their preferences, but I'm really building a relationship. Maybe that sounds a little weird, but uh, no horror story or scary movie here. It's just I am really enjoying using the Gunter Wilhelm knives. You can check them out online also. Uh, and if you want to check out our shows online, it's just Barbecue Nation JT, and also email me at info at thecowboycook.com. Some of you have in- emailed me if I can talk right um, this last week about the subscription to uh, national barbecue news, we're still going to do that for a couple of weeks. So if you want to email me that uh, and request one, I'll see what I can do for you. Now let's get back and talk with Bridget Benz. When, you know, when you first started working with an outdoor oven, Bridget, I mean, in a a real oven, not a Green Mountain Grill or a Traeger or anything like that. What was the toughest thing that you had to learn, even if it means what you said off the air? You know, it takes some time to get the oven up to temperature. Well, I I had to unlearn all of my assumptions about how fast it heats up and how slow it cools down. The really the biggest thing, and I think I knew that to cook pizza, it had to be very, very, very hot. That was okay, but I couldn't handle that. It took a long time to get hot, especially at the beginning. But what I didn't learn until a spectacular failure was that it takes a really, really long time to cool one of those ovens down because the mass, as we were talking about earlier, right, does such great job of retaining heat and so i think the very first time we did a pizza party i had this shoulder of pork all you know broad dry brined and poked with with anchovies and dried apricots and fun stuff like that and a couple of hours after we were done with the pizzas i carried this lovely pork shoulder out in a big terracotta dish and put it in the oven and then went to sleep. <laughs> I was imagining this incredibly unctuous, you know, spoon tender piece of fabulous pork. And it was just nothing but ash in the morning. <laughs> I'm laughing because I've done that with a brisket. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, you go out there and you had, uh, delusions of grandeur i guess one might say and the next morning reality hits you and yeah it it was you could pull it apart with your fingers but it was more like sifting uh gravel (laughs) oh dear yeah very unfortunate i mean we did eventually if you want to do that you can you just have to set the alarm clock for like 3 a.m or something because it takes that long to one of the things I like to do. And I talk about in kiss by fire is I always want to maximize the oomph of the fuel. I don't want to be a wasteful cook. And so I do, I have finally come up with a way to use the oven after the pizzas are done. And my favorite is to take every pizza topping except the cheese all the ones that are left over because it's virtually impossible to plan the correct amount of toppings for your pizzas right so you got artichoke hearts and caramelized onions and fresh herbs and black olives and maybe some caramelized garlic you got all this stuff left over maybe some prosciutto 
throw that all in a big terracotta dish with some bone in skin on chicken thighs, toss it all up, put it back in the oven, which is still pretty darn hot, but now you're dealing with thighs instead of a huge piece of pork or a right. bird. It's done in seven minutes. You know, anything you put prosciutto in, I'm down with it. Period. <laughs> Period. I love that stuff. I, 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 I mean, I, I, uh, <laughs> I'm a hog. I admit it. Um, I'll go to the, the store and a couple of the stores around where I live, they actually have kind of little, uh, pre-cut prosciutto squares that you can cook with. Yeah, they're great. If I'm going to use one, like on a show or something, I'll buy two or three of them because I'll eat one on the way home, you know? I don't need a candy bar. You can give me one of those things of prosciutto and I'll munch on that all the way home. So, well, the, the only thing that's surprising about that is that it's only one. Well, I've tried to get more disciplined as, as I've gotten older, you know, it, it doesn't always work. One thing you talk about uh, and you allude to in, in your book books um, that barbecue people don't do a whole lot of, they do some of it, but not a whole lot of it, is you're willing to, especially like when you're doing your pizza and stuff and you touched on it a minute ago, you're willing to move the dish around, whatever you're cooking. Um, you know, go back to where we were talking about home oven versus wood oven. I do it at home. If we get a, a pizza to cook ourselves or if I make one or something, I, you know, I have the big pizza spatula that's probably the not the proper term for it in Italian or something, but um, I'll reach in the oven and, and, you know, turn it around a little bit so that you, again, you know, you've got a hot spot and a cold spot so that all that crust comes out just perfect uh, like that. But a lot of, you know, when you were talking about doing your uh, pork shoulder, or your pork butt, um, you know, you put it in and you leave it pretty much. But I was, I was real curious is, um, you recommend moving it around. I do too. Uh, why do you think people are afraid to move the dishes once they get in the oven? Gosh, um, I don't know. I'm a really bad person to answer that question because I can't even imagine. I mean, when I do, I do say when people put protein down the first time on a grill, they shouldn't move it right away because it has to seize up and begin that process of building a crust. But then after that, you really have to move it. And I think in a wood oven, it's, it's very important because you have the fire on one side. But it's also the same thing with uh, a Weber on indirect heat. So for any kind of a kettle or that type of thing, you usually have a higher level of heat on one side than the other. Right. So you must shift things around, even even on a kettle grill. Right. Well, you've got uh, the indir probably. indirect and direct heat there. And, <clears throat> you know, whatever whatever you're cooking, part of it is going to get closer to the direct heat than the other part. Yeah. So you've got to swap them around. You know, you just don't want to do it right away. Um, I There was a time where I, well, I'm always a little bit overambitious, but one time in Italy, we had a wood oven in, the, in a rental house and we tried to to, this is a real cautionary tale. We tried to produce the entire menu in the oven so that we wouldn't be wasting this wood. Yeah. And it was a nightmare because, you, yes, you have to move them around, but if there's too many things in there at once, you're going to run into them. They're going to collide. So you have to pull 
the little Tuscan grill, that's the one with the feet on it. Right. You have to pull that out, the front, set it aside somewhere with your heavy-duty leather, leather gloves, gloves so that you can rotate the chicken and then put the Tuscan grill back in with the zucchini on it. And then the, by that time, the coals are dying out, so you have to take everything out again so that you can poke the coals and add some more wood. I, you know, I think there's a fine line here between fully utilizing your oven and driving yourself absolutely insane. So I noticed in some of your recipes, <clears throat> and this isn't Kiss by Fire, which I loved, by the way. Um, well, let me phrase it to you this way. George Carlin once said, if you nail two things together that have never been nailed together before, somebody will buy it. And I've always, and I, and I don't take that, don't take that as a slight whatsoever. It just means that you've been very creative in putting things together in your dishes that sometimes people wouldn't think of. Okay. Um, Cause to tell you the truth, I was looking at one of them. <clears throat> I think maybe this was in your wine book. Uh, you, you had candied kumquats and I'd never, I'd never thought about candied kumquats. I've never had one. So I can't say as I, know much about kumquats to begin with but um i just think that's very creative when you start especially with your pizzas and stuff you can put different toppings on no you don't always have to have pepperoni or sausage or black olives you know like the kind of standard americanized pizza you've you've done some very creative things there do you just so here's the question do you bridge it as you're driving or working on something else uh, another dish <clears throat> and then all of a sudden you say, you know, I I can put uh, feta cheese with aardvark or something. You know, you could do that. And that creative piece that comes into your mind. You know, I, I um, my favorite bad example of putting two things together is <laughs> rabbit and raspberry. They have no they have no affinity for one another. But if you take your, and so fusion is not something that I really believe in, but I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I, I tend to do what I call wine country style pizzas. And I take as, as inspiration is usually a cultural one. So I'll give one little quick example that uh, the Wine Enthusiast magazine wanted to come out and do a whole feature on uh, an entertaining feature on me and my oven and my wine country style pizzas. And they said, well, what would be, you know, give us an example of a fun pizza. And I said, well, how about squid and chorizo? And they're like, yuck, no way. No American is ever going to put squid on a pizza. I don't care what else is there. <laughs> you know, my inspiration was saying, but then I decided to change. I said, well, what about calamari and chorizo? pizza with shaved manchego now we're you know we're in spain right uh, it, they ended up putting it on the cover of the magazine they loved it so much we're going to take a break here on barbecue nation be back with uh bridget bins and wrap up the show right after this Hey everybody, it's JT, and this is a special version of Barbecue Nation. It is brought to you in part by Painted Hills Natural Beef. Beef you can be proud to serve your family and friends. That's Painted Hills Natural Beef. Welcome back to Barbecue Nation here on the Sun Radio Network. <clears throat> with a frog in my throat today, we're talking with Bridget Benz. 
Her and her husband, Casey, own uh, Refugio Paso Robles, and you can look that up online, and you can actually go meet Bridget and stay there and take some cooking classes and other stuff. Beautiful part of the country down there. Do, you, do they call that Central California, Central Coast? What do they call that these days? We call it the Central Coast, but you were right earlier on when you introduced me saying that Los Angelinos would con- might consider it Northern California and San Franciscans might consider it Southern California. There's no actually established cutoff point as to where one starts and the other one ends. Um, and so it depends on where you're standing. There was one of those amusing maps <laughs> showing what San Franciscans think of as Southern California. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, they, they probably think Redding and Red Bluff is the Great White North or something. I don't know. You know, they when you're up there that far, because uh, I know when I when I lived in Los Angeles, I did for a couple of years and went to school there. When you talked about Northern California, they were like, you know, Fresno, maybe Stockton, San Francisco, the Bay Area. That was about as far north as they thought about. You know, they didn't. Yeah, nobody even knew that Redding was up there. Yeah. It's an amazing place. Got olive stands all over the bar. So, um, you know, doing that. Over the years, what do you think you've learned the most from from authoring and co-authoring all these books, Bridget? Boy, that's a tough one. Um, I, I, I've learned that there's not really anything new. There are just new ways to look at things. And that skill and intuition and meet thermometers are the way to success. Yeah, I would agree with you there. I think the one thing that I've learned is um, unless I've opened a can of chili or something, my meat thermometer is always right there with me, whether I'm cooking indoors or outdoors. It's never far out of my reach. I think that's the one thing that I've kind of drilled into myself over the years because I see uh, when you go to a friend's house for dinner and they, you know, put out a lovely menu and lovely spread and all that. And the ones that don't cook very often usually invite me to cook the meat or something, you know, that's, I, I kind of had to make some changes in our social calendar saying, no, I'm not going to go if I have to cook, you know? Um, mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. But, uh, a lot of people still, and I don't understand this really because they're not very expensive, don't cook with a meat thermometer. And um, I, I don't know. I don't get it. If you're going to be serious about cooking, you got to have one of those, among other things. But that that to me is probably the most important tool you can have is a good meat thermometer. Um, you know, Meathead calls himself the hedonism evangelist. And I think I could call myself the thermometer evangelist. There you go. Uh, and I I give them out to my friends so that hopefully they improve their their skills. But you know, I, I as I we talked about a little bit that I've written a bunch of chef cookbooks, right? And what, I've learned so much from these guys. But I used to say, I'm standing there in the basement kitchen or something, holding a holding a notebook and a tape recorder and trying not to step on a big pot of meatballs. <laughs> and I'll say, well, how long? Yeah. <laughs> you know, how long does it take? And he says, and they'll say, until it's done. Yep. Yep. And people are always asking me how long. And I'm like, use your thermometer, use your senses, your eyes, your nose, your touch, 
you'll know when it's done. But as part of my job, I have to try to narrow that down and then give that visual cue. Yeah, I work with a lady here in, in Portland, and I've worked with her for years on TV. And um, she always will ask me, because she doesn't cook very much. Although I've gotten her to cook a few things over the years. But she she's she's not a big Susie homemaker. You know, she's very busy in her career and hosting morning shows and doing all that stuff. But she'll say, how long? And I always just give her the deadpan when it's done, you know? <laughs> And, yeah. she, and she laughs every time. And I think the audience has probably seen that enough time. They're like, yeah, Helen, when it's done, you know, it's, but um, anyway, it's, <clears throat> it is funny like that. And it's kind of interesting to, you know, watch the reaction on people's face. Do you get invited out a lot to, to cook? Friends house? Uh, only, there's a, there's a small bubble of people that have the, developed the confidence over years of me saying, I don't care. I just want you to feed me. Right. <laughs> and now they, they have become confident enough to invite me over. But for a long time, nobody ever would. And there's still a bunch of people that go into, you know, cardiac arrest when I walk into their kitchen. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Sometimes I've gone to car cardiac arrest after they fed me, though, you know. <laughs> so that's that's yeah. kind of a tough deal uh bridget we're not we're not quite done with the show but bridget is going to stick around for a few minutes uh for the after hours part of this uh if you're you know listen to the podcast and streaming versions and stuff so um did your did your husband know how to cook before you guys got married well he had a couple of, of set pieces uh i believe he he does some a keka, you know, a pasta with the raw diced tomatoes yeah. and cheese. And I've now moved him over into dessert mode because I don't do desserts. And he takes to cook with me in the kitchen because I'm always trying to make things better. I'm just trying to be helpful. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I learned a long time ago to stay away from other people that are cooking, but that doesn't really apply to my husband. Yeah, are you, you hover? Are you a yeah. hover? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm getting better at it though. I will. I will just walk away, and then I come back and deal with the tornado of dishes that is left at the end. Yeah, I've gotten better at that over the years. I will confess because when my wife and I first got married, there was no dish unturned in the kitchen. Um, but that was 30 years ago, you know. And I was known for you know putting on a great meal. But nobody wanted to go into the kitchen because it was just trashed. Now I've I've perfected my skills a little bit over the years. So when I'm done, there's unless it's a big gathering like Thanksgiving or Christmas or something like that, um, it's not the mess it used to be. And I also taught myself how to clean up as I go along, um, which is a skill I'm very proud of now. I don't mind saying. <laughs> you know, I have to say, Jeff, I've always been like that. I don't know where it came from, maybe my mother, but I must clean as I go along. Otherwise, I get discombobulated. Yes. And if I, um, that means that it takes me longer than it should because I have to clean up from one phase of the cooking before I start the next one. It, my husband does not have any such uh, compunctions. So when he cooks, it, it is kind of a disaster but I, that's it's better i stay away and then i go in and clean up but for me cooking 
I think I, I think I learned it in cooking professional cooking school, the the need to have a blank canvas, a clean slate for the next phase. Bridget is going to stick around for the after hours. We've got Max Good coming up in hour two of the show. And uh, for those of you who don't get hour two, we'll be back next week. And for those that do and you're neck of the woods we'll be back with uh, more barbecue nation in just a minute take care everybody barbecue nation is produced by jtsd llc productions in association with the vision networks and salem media group all rights reserved